Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. I am joined today by my co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings in sunny San Diego. Uh, we have an exciting guest on our show today, Eric Branstad, whom we'll get to in one minute. Uh, and today, uh, as we are doing right now, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Dead's Europe 72 tour, we will be talking to you today about their show played on May 11th, 1972 uh, in the Grand Hall uh, in Rotterdam, Holland. And just to get you all a little bit interested, uh, Dan, can you spin an opening cut for us here, please? Chinatown Shuffle, always a great one. Rob, how you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great, Larry. Uh, the thing about Chinatown Shuffle I always find so interesting is they kind of stopped playing it after 72. I mean, obviously, they stopped playing it with uh, The Loss of Pig, but it's got that same ragtime feel that you expect to see in like a um, what became Wave That Flag and then U.S. Blues. And if you listen to the intro of Chinatown Shuffle, it is literally note for note the exact same intro as the uh, as the first notes of, uh, of Wave That Flag. And so it's uh, you know a weird sort of morph of, of going in, but it's got... You know, that same sort of, uh, you know, honky-tonk uh, Americana feel of, like, you know, a vaudevillian parlor uh, that they that they employ in that tune. It's always a lot of fun for that reason. You know, and only in 1972 could you get away with calling a song Chinatown Shuffle. So, you know, good for them for back in the day. But the part of that clip that I really like is Keith Gauchow's piano playing, you know, right as we start the clip leading into that last round of singing. Keith really dove into this song, man. He took it over, and I thought he was really great on it. I like that a lot. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's a fun time where you've got you know sort of the combination of Pig and Keith on that. Definitely an, an interesting way to uh, to start the show. Well, we're we'll, we're going to get back to this uh, show a little bit in a little while. One thing I can tell you is that uh, you can take a clue from today's opening. We are going to be very very pig pen heavy focused on this show today. Uh, the other thing you need to know is that the uh, show from Rotterdam uh, on May 11th was Dick Lavatla's favorite show of the entire Europe 72 tour. And we'll talk more about that in a little while uh, after we visit with our guests and talk about some marijuana stuff that's going on. Uh, but please stick around and, and listen to it because this is this is just a great show and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Rob, you want to go ahead and introduce our guest today? Sure. Yeah, I'm always fired up when we've got, you know, sort of pure play cultivator joining us. So uh, today we are joined uh, from Northern California uh, by Eric Branstead. And Eric, uh, I'll give a bit of his bio before, but, you know, when it comes to, to popping out depths in the, uh, the NorCal market, uh, he's about as OG as they come. 
So it's fun to have someone that, you know, is a, a big fan of the Grateful Dead, but also can, can tell you a fair amount of, um, you know, kind of where we've gotten to, to where, you know, today, large-scale commercial greenhouses are, are the norm. But, you know, even 10 years ago, uh, they weren't. If you want to go back another 10 years before that, where, you know, people were just pulling down basically black box harvests out of NorCal, I'm pretty sure Eric can give us the, uh, the entire timeline and kind of the progression of how we got to where we are today. But with that, you know, welcome to the show, Eric. How you doing, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, it's awesome to see where things have come uh, all this time. And uh, it's awesome that you guys have this podcast going on. I, I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. This is uh, it's a lot of fun for us because, you know, as Rob said, these are things, uh, the Grateful Dead and Marijuana that he and I like to nerd out on. And it's a great opportunity you know, when we get to talk to, and I mean this only in the nicest way, of course, fellow nerds, uh, but a- actually guys who know uh, significantly more about it than we do. We know enough to be dangerous. So we like to, you know, to talk about it and find out what you can educate us on and hopefully educate the listeners a little bit. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come on with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks again. For sure. So. Give us a little bit of your background, Eric. You know, what, what first got you into cannabis? And then, you know, more importantly, what got you into this work you're doing now? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, as a kid, um, I, I, I grew up in a, in a farming community uh, called Linden, and it's uh, east of Stockton, California. And so, um, you know, in the, in the mid-'80s and going into the 90s, it was a little bit different out there. And, and uh, a lot of people were getting into some heavy drug use and some different things that I didn't necessarily align with. And, and I definitely loved where I was growing up, but things were kind of taking a different direction. And I got turned on to the dead. And, uh, you know, in the early 90s, middle high school, and so even though it was towards the end of the, you know, the, the cycle of the Grateful Dead, I definitely caught many years and spent a lot of time, you know, seeing Jerry shows and getting to see the Grateful Dead and, and Arco Arena. No, not Arco. Stupid. Cal Expo was right down the road. Arco is stupid. Sure. Cal Expo was right down the road. So Cal Expo was one direction. Shoreline was the other. And so we were able to, from where I live, you know, at that age, be able to hit Shoreline and, and Cal Expo quite frequently. And, you know, along that way, I was definitely into cannabis and, you know, where do you see better cannabis each time it seems like that you go? Well, on the Grateful Dead lot, it seemed like. And, you know, it went from Kind Bud to Chem Dog or whatever. And, and I was, you know, I was uh, always interested in, in it. And so by the time I was 18, I packed up with some buddies and, and moved to Humboldt County to try to learn about some things. And it's funny that you brought that up a minute ago about black boxing because that's what it was called at the time. And, uh, that's where I learned my first experience about black boxing. But then you shoot to 2006, you know, from 92 to 2006. And, uh, I, I ended up taking on a job with a greenhouse company that was the first light deprivation greenhouse company. And, uh, I did that for 11 years. So it kind of came full circle with the whole, uh, black boxing and following the kind bud and, and seeing where it, <laughs> seeing where it ended up today. Can you uh, explain for our listeners uh, what you mean by black boxing and um, uh, light deprivation? Yeah, for sure. So cannabis is a photo period plant, which means that um, how it grows and matures or flowers is dictated by the light cycle. And so most people are kind of familiar with the idea that you plant the, the seed in spring outside, let's say, for a lot of gro- crops, not just cannabis and you plant the seed in the springtime around now, and by fall, August or fall, by the end of the summer, we, we have plants that are ready to harvest. And cannabis kind of falls in that guidelines, but there's a little bit more to it in the sense that 
you can con- control that mechanism. Um, and, and the most people know it through indoor growing. And so what indoor growers do is they turn the lights to an 18 hour cycle and that makes cannabis plants just grow, grow and grow. They won't produce any flowers. When you cut the light back to 12 hours of light on and off, you actually can produce flowers. And so basically the idea was to try to do the same thing outside um, and, and doing and not having to use lights. And so since we can't turn on and off the sun, what we do is we put the plants in the dark. And in order to do that, some people would take a cardboard box and put it over the entire plant outside. Um, and in some cases, people might, you know, nowadays or, or later on, people started doing what's called, called pulling tarps. And they'd use this big uh, light, uh, light type tarp to pull over an entire greenhouse. And so it went from, you know, black boxing a couple plants here and there to, entire crops and now it's you know part of the industry uh, everywhere basically and so um you know basically the idea is just to get plants to flower when mother nature didn't intend for them to do and and not to have to rely on indoor lighting to do it and then that that allows you to speed up the um the harvest cycle right you can generate more harvests over the same period of time Exactly. You do have to have a nursery so that you can have plants ready to move in. But the idea is to constantly be flowering and harvesting. And so, you know, let's say out of one greenhouse, somebody, instead of harvesting one time a year, can get up to five harvests a year if they have the right equipment, enough plants and infrastructure to kind of support it. Um, Originally, black boxing was the whole idea was just to get your plants to finish before everyone else, you know, to beat the glutton of the flood or the harvest season when the prices went down. Um, And now it's turned into more than one harvest. Yeah, it was, it was more than that. If you go back to like, you know, 1987, 88, when, you know, camp first started flying choppers in NorCal, you know, there was also a period of time where you say, okay, as a hedge, let's pull down an early harvest to make sure we can at least pay our property tax for the year, just in case uh, camp starts dropping our land for the rest of our harvest. So in those days, you know, it's like, can we pull down 20% of a harvest, you know, early on just to make sure we got some cash in our pocket? You know, that was kind of the original, the original catalyst, you know, after the pot famine summer of 89, people started wising up going, shit, we got to do something to prevent, you know, um, choppers landing in October uh, to, to take our whole crop. But after people started realizing they could do that, then black boxing became, you know, a, a pretty big, you know, guaranteed industry. For the reason you said, like, let's get out ahead of it. Let's pull down the first, you know, flower where we can actually get, you know, drought pricing before the flood and then start being tarping where you're tarping hoop houses. So, you know, the progression, the progression was really interesting, but I think it was born out of, uh, out of a hedge more than anything else. Yeah. When I talked to some of the uh, growers that moved to the Humboldt in the seventies, they talked about black boxing for their, um, seed plants to get them to sex. And so, you know, even before we were flowering plants, people were black boxing cannabis for, you know, basically to see whether they had males or females so they didn't have to waste a bunch of time growing the plants, uh, however big they get and how much time it takes before they would show their, their sex. And so it's definitely a great technique. And there's other industries that do it, but cannabis is pretty specific and, and, and unique into itself for the darkening technique to get, get, uh, you know, the fruits of our labor. <laughs> Would you say that's the, the standard style of, of commercial growing these days in the United States? Yeah, I would say, I mean, most every company at this point looks at some sort of greenhouse or they, you know, they call it mixed light also because the greenhouses are more fancy with lights and things inside. But 
I would say that the main focus is greenhouse because the cost of indoor can be quite expensive because of the power consumption alone. And, you know, people are starting to look at cannabis differently now. And so they, you know, there, there is rumors that go around that sun grown or outdoor cannabis might be dead. And, and the indoor is the superior quality and, and type of cannabis that most people are, are going after. And so that's highly debated right there alone. Yeah. I think, um, I think nowadays for the outdoor um, growers that have moved into uh, greenhouses, you know, changing the photovoltaic cycle and, you know, basically eliminating the drought completely in California where, you know, now guys are pulling down their first harvest in May and then, you know, second one in, in July, third one in, uh, you know, early September and the last one, um, you know, coming in November before they keep everything kind of in stasis over the winter and veg. Uh, is completely sort of changed the uh, the entire entire industry. But I mean, look, you were one of the pioneers. Like you know, Forever Flowering was you know the first greenhouse company I knew before like Connolly Brothers popped open. Before you know, a bunch of other guys started selling the cannabis. What was the uh, what was it like in those early days? And you know, again, I think my boy, uh, you know, shout out to my buddy uh, Brian Malin up at Vital Garden Supply, who was you know definitely on the tip early and still is you know one of the biggest uh, sellers of small greenhouses. You know, what was it like in, in 2006, 2007 as people started saying, like, we can actually drop, you know, not, not a big facility, not like what we see as far as commercial greenhouses today, but the first, you know, manageable kind of, um, you know, hobbyist greenhouses in their backyards, especially around that area of around Grass Valley and, and like Oregon House and, and um, you know, uh, um, uh, what are the other, some of the, the towns in that area that, that were just blowing up with greenhouses back then? Yeah, no, it- it was definitely an interesting time. I mean, it was, you know, at that point, you know, starting to get more legalized in California, I guess you could say with the dispensaries opening up and the, and they, you know, the, the patient model and things like that. And next thing you know, people are growing everywhere. Like everybody's a, a legal patient grower or whatever. Um, and so it definitely got kind of crazy, but you know, Early on, we saw people starting to get really, you know, 5,000 and 6,000 square foot greenhouses and kind of going for it. So back at that time, a 3,000 to 5,000, let's say, square foot automated greenhouse was really big. And so there was a handful of people at that time that were getting into those greenhouses. And and they definitely kind of stuck out like sore thumbs because they were big, fancy greenhouses on property that typically didn't always have much other infrastructure. So it was kind of one of those obvious things and and you know uh, you know brian when you speak about him he was actually the installer of those greenhouses and so at the time the company went with the type of greenhouse that was from ontario canada and it needed special uh, installation um and so brian's company got trained to be the first qualified installers for that um forever flowering situation and so brian did a lot of the first installs and so you know, it was it was kind of crazy at the time because people were going bigger than they've ever gone, and and it was hard to get out to a lot of these jobs because they were still way way out in the boonies. And so, trucking and doing a lot of the things that we were doing to get stuff out there wasn't like it is now. It, it was a little bit it's a little more accepted now, and so you know there was people that were worried about having lumber trucks and certain deliveries out to their place, so they would schedule them at nighttime or do things that were just you know not quite so obvious because it, it would attract attention. And so, um, you know, it's kind of funny looking back now when there's movies like Murder Mountain that comes out. And, you know, we did a lot of jobs at that time back in Rancho Sequoia and, you know, 2007, 8-ish. And then, it, you know, some of the stuff about the movie, I think, was right around 2009. But, 
you know, we were out there during all of that stuff and, and, uh, yeah, we had a great time. <laughs> it was a great time to be doing that stuff and, and it's definitely come a long way. Um, you know, who would have thought that it would end up like it is now with, you know, like California, I think the biggest licensed greenhouse now is 5 million square feet. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's amazing. And in Illinois, if they ever get their act together, they're going to give out craft grow licenses for 9,000 square feet that you can increase over time to 14,000 square feet. It's, it, it, building on what you said, you know, uh, yeah, I knew a fair amount of guys in Elder Point back in the day, and, you know, I thought Murder Mountain was you know, definitely a little sensationalist. I know a lot of really good growers that are back in that zone. And uh, as you said, you know, greenhouses were popping up. The guys from spare time were dropping off, you know, tons of soil. It was, it was kind of this, like, crazy rush. My buddy Geeter was, was selling all the equipment out of uh, out of North Coast Hydroponics. Uh, you know, th- these guys were, were crushing a new industry, especially in the, you know, sort of the southern Humboldt, like, north of Garberville interior that was just, just on fire at that time. Yeah, I mean, when you when I think about the early '90s, before even close to our legalization, like when I moved to Humboldt in '92, you know, Humboldt and like Santa Cruz, especially Arcata in particular, were kind of like deadhead, you know, in between zones or something. It was kind of like you know when Jerry was in a coma, you know, everybody that was off tour was either in Arcata or in Santa Cruz, or you know, I'm sure there's people all over the United States and places, but for us in California. A good population of people hung out in Arcadia, Santa Cruz area, and things like that. And so the cannabis scene was so much different just because not everybody had it, and you know certain people did, and all the herb and something in Humboldt came from Southern Humboldt, had to get up to Northern Humboldt, um, and and so you know the trimming and the the seasonal thing was a lot different. Or totally. I don't know community it, aspect. It's before the gangsters moved in. Yeah, it's before the before the gangsters and the trimmigrants when like. You know, like um, Panther Gap was still kind of the scene. Yeah, dude, and some, and, and we knew like it was crazy because we'd go to shows and be like, okay, it's you know whatever's back on, let's head down the hill to you know either San Francisco or Cal Expo or one of these things, and so you know we'd stop off in Honeydew and pick up a pound or whatever, and it was just like the whole way down the hill, the car reeked, and all, you know it was like we were so excited, and all we kept talking about is the smell of this, you know, like holy shit, you know, like. And, and, and yeah. then you go to the next show and you'd stop at a different mountain over in Myers Flat or whatever. It was just like, holy shit, the next time you'd stop in Alder Point. I mean, it was just insane. And then you'd meet people on the lot. Yep. You know, and I can also tell you that you were probably buying weed from the same guys I was. Probably, you know. And then you run into people that are from Kentucky and other states. And you run into the chem, people that had chem dog from, you know... Uh, coming around and it was just like man there, there was just this circle and, and and a lot of these people are still around like some of the strains and some of the people are still you know out and about and and you can find them either in the industry or just uh you know maybe at a show or something and so uh we've lost a lot of people along the way too but there's still an amazing amount of people still doing their thing and you know when you run into them it's kind of like seeing somebody you know you haven't seen them since the last show and you pick up where you left off yeah man there's, there's nothing i liked more in the early 90s than spending my uh my late summers in the Matol river and uh drinking at the hideaway and just smoking the best outdoor in the world yeah 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 now now i like going you know like uh you know when i get a chance and they have the dead place shoreline and stuff like going to shoreline and find finding bob snodgrass out in the glass so you can buy a glass pipe and you know, like some of the things that, uh, you know, we used to do, I'm like trying to relive some of those memories and it actually happens. Like I found Bob a few times and I bought a few pipes sitting in the grass and, 
my kids are like looking at me like I'm crazy, but I'm like, you guys just <laughs> if, if you were a if you were a honeydew guy and you were a snodgrass guy, you probably knew Dave Willis pretty well then too. He was putting out all the dog pot pipes back then. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I didn't know those people like you know face to face as much as I knew about them and knew who they were and things like that. I was kind of like at that time a little fly or speck on the wall, trying to be a spectator and just enjoy all these things that I was learning as a kid moving away from home. Uh, but you know, as as I got older, and you know, after the dead, let's say, you know, post dead, I started doing a lot of the zero shows at the Maritime Hall, and, and you know, that was kind of the, the next thing was uh, Kimok. Yeah, Kimok and Zero at the Maritime was like home base for a long time there for a couple of years or whatever, and and uh, and, and, and and eventually I moved away from Tahoe and got over to the. I mean, I moved away from Humboldt. Went to Tahoe for just a short bit, and then I've been here in Grass Valley for the last twenty years, and and uh, and this is a great little cannabis deadhead community itself in itself as well. Yeah, I'm actually uh, familiar with Grass Valley. Uh, we have some family about that way, and uh, they're always telling us great things about it. And uh, my wife and I are hoping one of these days we'll have a chance to go out and visit. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely come in the springtime. You want to beat the fire season and any chance of the smoke. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> So your first dead show was uh, was 1991 at Cal Expo, and as you said, if you lived in that area, you you definitely got three Cal Expos in the spring and three Cal Expos in the fall, and you normally got three Shorelines in the spring and three in the fall. So just like, and that's not even you know counting the Oaklands you could pull off uh, in the winter time or in February. Yeah, Oakland, right? Oakland Coliseum, the Greek Theater. Yeah, yeah, everything's out there. That's a well in the 90s. That you know, that just between the three venues, the Oakland Coliseum, Shoreline, and Cal Expo, that's 20 shows a year that you've got access to within a couple hours of your house. It's not not quite as good as New York City, but pretty damn close. But uh, you know, it's uh, so I'm guessing you started um, started catching some shows at Shoreline and Cal Expo. You said 91 were your first shows, and then you know, did you jump on the bus pretty hard and start seeing a bunch of shows after that, or were you uh, just kind of a here and there kind of guy? No, I mean, I jumped on the bus as hard as I could for me, I guess, at the time. I didn't do a lot of East Coast traveling. I, I really stuck to the West Coast, so Oregon and mostly California, a little bit of Washington and Las Vegas and stuff like that. But like you said, there were so many shows alone in California and Jerry shows in between those at the Warfield and things like that that, like, you know, we were pretty filled up and, and uh, I found myself taking care of a lot of people's dogs or other things when they... Uh, went out east for tour and stuff like that and so I was kind of the home crew when people went out for tour but you know anything that was out here I definitely hit as much you know as as anything possible like I mean there's a few things that I missed because I was a little young and still at home like Jerry on the eel really like I mean I wish I really could have seen that one I was talking to friends on the phone at the time Um, not cell phones clearly but when they would get back to the hotel or right after and and uh, so, yeah, definitely. You're talking yeah. about the uh, the French's camp on the Old River in '87. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we covered those shows one day on the show a while back. So yeah, those are those are great shows. The Dead released the whole series of those shows. It wasn't until uh, Jerry died that I actually jumped in the car with a bunch of friends and we tried to do the other ones tour. I think it was '97 ish or whatever when the other ones played. Kim Ock was one of the guitarists with uh, uh, Bobby's guy. Um, and, uh, and man, I, we tried to go to every single show, but it's almost like they scheduled the tour to make it impossible to hit every <laughs> show because it was like bouncing around all across the place. And so you definitely couldn't have a hangover. And, uh, 
And we caught as many shows as we could, but it was so weird because I was so a Kim Ock fan, and it was like he didn't really like, I don't know, he didn't really take off a lot of times. It was Bobby's uh, lead guitarist that did a lot of the shining, you know, uh, I guess you'd say uh, moments or whatever. And, and Kim Ock was there, and he had a few good, you know, licks and leads and stuff. But man, he really, and at the time it was funny. I don't know anything about it and what the symbolism is to it maybe you guys know or whatever but Kimok at that time uh would sit down a lot of times and sometimes even be on a chair and maybe turn his back and be picking and really into his stuff and at the time when when he played with the other ones i don't know if zero had a lot of money or what their situation was at, at all really i used to stay in marin and follow him around too but i didn't really know the guys but you know it was like Kimok got brand new pair of pants and a brand new purple izod shirt and he wore that same uniform every single show across the country. And he had a stool, like a bar stool or a guitar stool to sit on that was on stage. And on that, on that stool, there were four baby shoes on the legs of the, of the, you know, little white newborn baby shoes on, on each leg of the bar stool. And I just was like, what the fuck is going on with this bar stool and the baby shoes and, homie barely playing enough and i don't know it just was a trippy thing because i i was really there for the kimok experience and it just i, I don't know i was just like man this is kind of weird like there's something going on i just can't quite follow yeah it took a while for all of that with the other ones and all the different groups that, that came around but you know they, they all had their moments and they were all a lot of fun and uh, i've always been a big, big fan of steve kimok i you know i think he he always bring something to the table when he when he joins the party but uh yeah i mean look those are good times too it's we're talking about you know even dead and company while i can't necessarily say that it's my favorite music that i'm listening to these days i just really enjoy being at the the the, the shows especially here at wrigley field you know and there's forty thousand deadheads all camped out and hanging out and you know doing their thing and it's a great time it's a lot of fun i think kimok is a lot like uh, mikey hauser from panic was where both those guys are really introverted and, uh, you know, both pretty, pretty private guys and both of them, I think, have a fair amount of stage fright. And I remember when Kimaki used to do that as well, when he'd sit there and sit on a chair and, you know, sort of face away from the audience, which is exactly what Hauser did. And Hauser was, like, even a step further than that with, like, covering his eyes with his hair so he didn't have to look out into the audience, which is a really strange thing to be such a great guitar player and have so many people that want to see you play and you being so nervous about seeing them in return, which is it's always odd to me. Yeah. Uh, a, a funny story is uh, a judge, he, he, the singer at the time, I made friends with him. He was walking down this alley in Marin in Fairfax one time, and he was, I think he was pretty buzzed, and me and my buddy were sitting there, and I think he had just had a bro breakup with a girlfriend or something, and I don't know, we, we sat and talked with him and, and had some laughs, and me and my buddy were always cracking up or whatever, and we had him in such a good mood that he was like, man, I'm so glad I stopped and saw you guys, and you know, it helped me with my day and all this. And so we'd see him at the shows and judge was kind of like, judge was kind of like our homie. And, uh, I was a heavy drinker. I quit drinking, uh, in 1999. So it's been a long time, but at the time when I was drinking, it would get, it would get ugly. And there was a time where they were playing at this bar in Chico called the, uh, the Willie's main event or somebody's main event. It was called. And I remember, <laughs> I remember doing, getting so drunk that the bartenders threw me out. And the bar, I couldn't get back in. And so the band was on set break and judge went and told the band said, or told the bar goes, Hey, we're not going to play unless you let this guy back in. <laughs> and that was my uh, one moment of fame in, in, uh, drunk, I guess, uh, music history. Nice. 
It's always nice when they stand up for you. Eric, this is um really interesting stuff. Let me ask you a question. Um, do you uh, ever work with people outside of the California area? Do you consult with people around the country? Yeah, most of my work is outside of California, to be honest. Okay. And, and like, have you gone into competitive application states and worked with groups and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I've worked with MSOs uh, in, in multiple states at the same time. And so uh, Florida and Arizona have been some of my biggest uh, states as far as clients and uh, traveled to Macedonia before COVID to consult on some projects. And so I haven't gone out of the country since, but I've been all over the country. And, you know, during COVID, I never locked down once and traveled and lived in a hotel the whole time. And I'm, I think this is the first month that I have been home an entire month without having to go anywhere in the last four years. And so, wow. Uh, it's yeah, I've been quite busy, but California is in such a shitter. It's not as easy to get jobs here uh, because the cannabis situation is so bad. Which uh, which company in Macedonia? I'm actually invested in a greenhouse in Macedonia. You know, it wasn't even a company yet. There was some guys from Greece that had the money and some people from Macedonia that had the land and they wanted me to come out and help them kind of sort out this idea of some greenhouses. And I would say probably... I went out there for a couple of days and met with them. And by the time I got home, their relationship already started going haywire. And probably a week or so later, it was, it was over. <laughs> so happens. I, I, I had a good trip. Yeah, I still haven't been there yet. I, uh, I wrote the check a couple of years ago, and it's definitely you know, progressing. But uh, Macedonia, you know, it's definitely slowed down. They got hit pretty hard by COVID, and now it's starting to ramp back up. But uh but I'm excited. You know, I think Macedonia is going to be a, a really, really good market as far as an export market to the rest of the EU. The government really supports it. I mean, I met with the Minister of Defense, or I think that's what they are. I guess it's equal to the vice president. It was like late at night, and they drug me into this big state capital that smelled like cigarettes. And I was like nervous going, what the hell? And they'd heard there was an American in cannabis around. They wanted to just see what was up. And so we kind of went, he went over his resume. I went over mine and he finally goes, oh, so we are colleagues. And I was like, whew, okay, yeah. Can I go now? You know, like. You're not going to kill me. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. You know what I mean? I just, I meet people and they're like, hey, come out. And I'm just like, okay. It's really hard to vet all this stuff and what I'm getting into sometimes. And so. I went and I made it back and, and that was a hairy moment for sure. But they said, we want we don't want Macedonia for being known to grow shitty cannabis. And, uh, you know, if you can provide help or whatever, that's fine for these guys. But they just wanted to kind of check in and clarify and let us know that they didn't want to be known for uh, shitty cannabis and that kind of thing. So it was cool and they're cool and, and, and you know, it's a lot of textbook shit in my job. A lot of my work is rescue work, I consider it, because it's not design. Like I was selling greenhouses for 11 years. I kind of thought I'd be in the design phase and helping people consult on that part, but it turned into cultivation where people are actually doing really bad and they need help. Uh, that's why I kind of call it the rescue. Or what they say is that we're doing really good, but we think we can do better. And, you know, and when I go there, they're usually... You know, all of them aren't doing a lot of textbook things that you should be doing. And once we sort out some of that stuff, it works out. So, so you mentioned the uh, the five million square foot greenhouse now in SoCal, which is Glasshouse's facility. Uh, have you had a chance to tour that? Because I, I actually got to walk through it a few weeks ago, and uh, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts if you if you've actually gone down and checked it out. Uh, 
No, I haven't seen that one yet. I've known Graham for about seven years. And I went to, I've known Graham before he was Glasshouse. I actually went with him to see the first one. I mean, he had already maybe signed the lease, but he didn't even know the alarm combo because the alarm was going off to the greenhouse when we went to go check it out. And he didn't know how to turn it off. And so <laughs> he did invite me to come check it out sometime. I talked to him on the phone for the first time in a while. And, and it's tough, you know, I mean, everybody wants to rally around small farmers and and that kind of thing and then when you see something like that open up and whatnot it definitely you know in spite of the taxes and all the other shit that goes on it definitely stirs some emotions for people yeah but i also think you know if you're looking at california that eventually we become the export state to the rest of the country and that those guys have a lot of wood to chop before they get that whole place open and right now it's just a phase one design you know, I think before you see that thing become fully operational, uh, there's going to be a lot of regulatory changes before um, be- before everyone should be really all that threatened. I agree 100. percent To be honest with you, I don't think it's, I, I don't think that they get the message out that they're only using a little bit of it and the rest of it not yet until there's export out of state. And the fact that the size that they're using really is the size of a grow in Lake County right now. So I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'm 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 not a you know, a PR guy or whatever, just know that like uh, a lot of people are looking at it for the whole entirety and they don't know the game plan. And so um, it's easy to throw stones at the last house, you know? Like. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'm a fan and, you know, shout out to Graham Farrar at Glasshouse. And if you do get down there, Eric, tell him to take you up on top of the water tower so you can actually look at the entire thing. It's a perspective that is unlike anything I've ever seen in Canvas that when this thing is fully built out, it gives you just an idea of how massive, the truly massive that operation is going to be if they ever get the thing completely dialed in online. From watching, like, you know, what, where we were in the 90s where a big harvest was, you know, a couple hundred plants in Humboldt to seeing what Graham's trying to build right now, it's a, uh, it's a completely new world. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's amazing what they're doing, and uh, I'm looking forward to going and checking it out. And, and uh, I'm always just, you know... <clears throat> Small farm, big farm, whatever, you know, but for me, like, I, it's kind of like what Frenchie Cannoli says in some of the stuff and that he's talked about, like, he always wanted to see fields of cannabis as far as the eye can see, you know, like, that was kind of one of his goals as he traveled around was looking for, you know, lots of other things. But one of the things that he mentioned resonated a lot with me because I'm not a hash maker myself, but I'm a fan is that, uh, he was looking for fields and fields of cannabis and he found them, but he was, I think he said he only had found one ever that was as far as the IT. And I always was the same way, like with the greenhouses and the greenhouse sales, when sure the bigger the greenhouse I sold, the better profit that we had. But at the same time, you know, we were at this time where we, everybody was growing in their backyard or hiding it, little things indoor, whatever. And we started getting to this bigger and bigger and bigger. And now here we are. And so, you know, I, not that my goal was to have, you know, the economics and whatever go on and deal with all that stuff. Like, I mean, really my head's outside of that. I'm just like, I want to see big, you know, greenhouses full of cannabis was kind of my goal. And so maybe it's gone too far, maybe not, but it definitely is something I wanted to see. And, and, uh, and that's, you know, that's going to happen at some point, but I mean, uh, like you said, you know, when things open up and we go to other States and stuff like that, I mean, there's definitely with the export and things that you know even Macedonia is is able to do to other countries and you know with the smokable flour the amount that goes to Germany and I mean people are puffing on stuff so hey you mentioned Frenchie real fast um 
What do you think about the trend that's happening in California going back to solventless hash? Like, you, uh, are you stoked about it? Are you so people are getting away from mixed gas and from, um, from, from butane and going back to kind of the traditional art form of, uh, of making real hash and starting with rosin and starting with, you know, like ice water and all the rest of the old sort of uh, traditional techniques? Yeah, I mean, my main reason that I like the way that trend is going is in order to make that good quality hash that people are talking about, you have to have great quality cannabis. And so we're kind of in this, you know, area where there are a lot of places and facilities and maybe brands or whatever that push a mids type of a, a quality type of material. It maybe isn't the premium and whatnot. And so it's hard to, it's easy to fresh fruit everything. And you can definitely do that with compromised material and put it through a gas and still get a great product. But it, it doesn't mean that uh, you can do the same with hash. And so... Um, the ability or the idea, I guess you could say, that it's got a level of people's quality in order to get better quality is definitely a plus in my opinion. But I think people are also going to learn some of the lessons that, you know, uh, there's some great hash out there that have been great examples. And so I think the price is going to have to come down a little bit. But, you know, that's up to the hash makers, too. But, you know, they're... You look at what Raw Garden did with the distillate in California or whatever and the whole diamonds and a lot of that stuff. And they drove that from, you know, one time for a minute before legalization, it was 175 a gram. And by legalization in a few years, they got it down to 30. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's just interesting to watch how this stuff works out, who does what. And quality has always been Frenchie's main thing. And, and I definitely agree with that because... The other extracts don't require as a quality material to, to turn it back into a quality product. Yeah, I've, I've always looked at Frenchie and the uh, sort of the hash church guys out of BC as being the, the leaders in bringing this back, and I, I love the movement. Um, so, hey, you want to stick around and talk some Grateful Dead with us? Yeah, sure. Awesome. So Larry, let's let's get back in. Let's talk some Europe '72. I mean, I know this is a uh, this is a show that's close to your heart, so. Uh, so what's happening next, man? This is a show that's close to my heart. It's uh, It comes at a really interesting moment in the uh, Europe 72 tour. Uh, they just played, you know, they're in, they're in Holland at this stretch, so they just played up in Amsterdam at the Concert Gabo, uh, which, you know, for fans of Paul McCartney and Wings, you might remember from Venus and Mars Rock Show, but... Uh, I always had to go check out that was what the concert Cabo was. And I learned and, uh, the dead played their show there. Now they come and they, uh, uh, they play this show here, um, in Rotterdam. And then from here, they go to what's my favorite show of the Europe 72 tour that we talked about last year. And that's the show in Lille, France. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that show again one day, but, uh, uh, this year we're, we're going to focus on Rotterdam. It is Dick's favorite show. Um, the first thing to know about it is that it has, a 47 minute dark star and it's an amazing dark star dick loved it thought it was one of the best they ever played uh, it's one of the longest that they ever played but there's no way to go through a 47 minute dark star and pull out 45 or 60 seconds of it and really give it its due so we're not playing any clips from the dark star today but uh if you go out and and, and download this uh, this show off of archive.org um, it's just really an amazing run of songs from Next Time You See Me into Dark Star and then out of this Forever Dark Star into Sugar Magnolia, into Caution, Truck, and then closing it, uh, it, uh well, Uncle John's Band and then closing it out with One More Saturday Night. And, um, 
you know, it, it, it's just fantastic. Uh, in the write-up in the, uh, the the release in the Europe 72 tour box, uh, they spend most of their time talking about the Dark Star, uh, but they do spend a little bit of time talking about some of the other tunes. And uh, another tune that I really wanted to feature from this show, and we talked about it last week, Rob, for uh, the, the 100-Year Hall show, um, that this was a this was a really prime time for Pigpen because not only did he write and perform uh, Chinatown Shuffle, um, but he also had this next song that I want to feature, uh, The Stranger, Two Souls in Communion. And we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute after Dan plays the clip. It's, it's really kind of a unique Pigpen tune, I think. song rob it's it's a, i understand why it was hard to keep it off of last week's show it's it's i really like it a lot yeah it's it's rare because you know you think of pig tunes and you think of like boisterous energy you know you think about like the love lights and alligators it's rare that you know you have a down tempo song that pig was playing and this is one of the, the few exceptions and he you know he just does such a nice job with it the vocals and everything as he kind of strings it out all the way through there and um, but as you pointed out before, uh, much like Chinatown Shuffle, you know, at the end of the Europe 72 tour, both of those songs pretty much seem to go bye-bye. And uh, while I'm sure part of that had to do something with, you know, Pigpen cutting back and eventually dropping out and then passing away, there's a lot of songs along the way, uh, Pigpen tunes that Bob Weir has picked up, right? Love Light, he's often played, and Good Lovin', and, you know, s- s- tunes that, you know, Pig also often did a lot of himself. I would have loved to have seen, uh, you know, some of these tunes stay in the uh, stay in the repertoire for a while. Can't you see Two Souls in Communion being a Garcia band song, or or, or even like a uh, Jerry singing with the Grateful Dead? Oh, for sure. Because when I look at that song and you think about who's going to play it, you know, like the natural pick for me would be uh, this would be a Jerry tune. Absolutely. No, I I would agree with that. You know, it's 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 just like another beautiful Jerry ballad to sing, and. Um, but, you know, look, there's only one pig pen and he made these songs unique and made them his own. And, you know, that's why we love him. And, you know, those of us that are just a little too young and never had quite had a chance to see him, you know, it is what it is. Um, Eric, I'm just curious, you know, with, with your group of buddies who you would go to see, uh, see shows with, um, did you guys have a strong feeling, you know, for pig pen and his tunes? Yeah. I mean, at the time, you know, traveling around, everybody listened to a lot of tapes, you know, so it was like listening to shows and listening to different styles and, you know, everybody had their favorite reason or why or whatever. And so, yeah, there was always lots of discussions about that. And a lot of people wanted to be as old school as possible. You know what I mean? It was Sure. It was cool to like the old stuff anyway, but, you know, I mean, everybody was always fascinated with, you know, a lot of the transitions over time and how the band kind of held that together, uh, especially in the keyboardist department. Well, so by the time you guys started seeing them, uh, did you 
were you able to catch a Brent show or was he already gone by the time you started? No, Brent, Brent was there. Uh, I, you know, my thing of it was, is my first show was hard to remember exactly the music itself because I was so taken, you know, the first one, I think even I might've got, been in the parking lot my very first time and not even made it into the show. It wasn't until the second, you know, same summer type of thing, you know, it was like, um, it was funny meeting those Congo drummers, guys that have been with the Dead since the seventies, but they haven't been into a show in twenty years, and they just beat on drums outside. I mean, I was just like in awe of all this different shit that went on, and so uh, knowing the musical lineup was hard to know. But you know what I did know when I was starting to go into the shows is that yeah, Brent was gone when I started really identifying and, and paying attention, um, and and uh, it was just in between Vince with. Uh, uh, gosh, what was his name? But what's his name? Uh, Bruce Hornsby. Yeah, Hornsby, and and then he was kind of doing the training for Vince along the way. So I I definitely saw all of that, and uh, yeah, it was it was always like one of those things. Like I said, there was always stuff going on, but as a fan that kind of was new, it was hard to figure out all this shit. Everybody knew way more than us. That's why you keep going, though, right? You, that's same with me. Same with any of us. You go to the shows the first couple of times. And at least my feeling of it is, is that some people just get pulled in enough that all of a sudden you realize, you know, it's not just the music. There's this whole culture. And once you're part of the culture, you want to know as much about it as you can. Yeah, because there's also these, you know, lot icons or these lot, you know, people that are you know, highly rememberable. And then there's people on the inside, you know, different that are highly rememberable. You know, the dancing bear guy or whatever that walked up and down the steps at every show. And was like, you didn't see him. Only in California. He, yeah, he wasn't in Shakedown Street walking up and down, but he was inside doing that. But, you know, the dude's outside. Fast Ed wasn't inside, but he was outside. And yeah, I, I could do without Fast Eddie inside. Between you and me, I'm all cool that he and Ira and Abraham just stuck to the lot. I didn't need the wrecking crew inside the show. Yeah, I didn't know it you know, at all. Like I said, to me, it was just this like whim of like what the fuck is really going on and stuff. And so it's just like I said, these people and these names and these things that, you know, like were talked about, you know, things that happened on the lot didn't wasn't what was inside and vice versa. And so it was almost like two different cultures in the same culture traveling together definitely 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 well you know it, but it's always fun because you know everybody has their own unique experience and starts out at whatever point in time they start out at and you know that that becomes your 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 window through which you see the grateful dead and base everything else off of so did you have a favorite keyboard player between the four you know the four majors between pig keith uh brent and uh, vince did you have an era that you liked the most I mean, honestly, I like Bruce Hornsby the most when when I was seeing shows because he was super good and flowing, and I liked listening to his stuff even on the side. And so Vince was cool and everything, but I really thought, man, I, I really vibed with Bruce Hornsby when he'd play with them and thought he would be the guy, but uh, ended up being Vince. And not no hate on Vince by any means, but uh, I just thought they clicked way harder. Yeah. It was a lot of fun listening to Hornsby. I agree. We definitely caught a few shows with him during that period of time and you know it was fun he would he drop one or two of his tunes in old valley road and stuff like that and you know they if you were hornsby fan it was great stuff always a lot of fun so rob going back to uh to our europe 72 here for a minute the place where this show uh, occurred at this um the great hall in rotterdam you know just reading about it is amazing and maybe this is partly what contributed to uh Dick's love of it, but it was a 2200 seat 
you know, modern designed concert hall. Um, you know, so everybody had a good view. Everybody was relatively close to the stage, you know, a tiny little theater. And, uh, you know, they had, they had a history, I think, the dead of sometimes showing up in tiny little places and just blowing the doors off of the joint. Um, and this is certainly one of those occasions. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know if you've ever been to Rotterdam, Larry, but, you know, Rotterdam's not a big city. It's, it's a rough and tumble, you know, seaside town that attracts, you know, a pretty interesting kind of warfrat element to it. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, even when they played Amsterdam, they only played at the Melkweg, which is, you know, I'm sure you've been there for shows. And that's also like a 2,000 person venue. So some of the, a lot of the venues in Europe 72 weren't big spots. And that was kind of the, uh, the, the joy of being over there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I would have, just the same way I would have loved to have seen Fish on their European tour in the, uh, the late 90s for the same reason. Anytime you catch a band that's, you know, kind of out of their element playing much smaller shows, and again, speaking to, you know, we've talked about many times before, and I think Eric would agree, that was the joy of seeing Garcia band at the Warfield, you know, like getting to see all the all the action at, you know, one-tenth of the size. So, uh, you know, super cool place to see it, but, uh, but yeah, Rotterdam's an interesting town just in general. Okay, I have not ever been there, but uh, um, I have been to Amsterdam, and I have been to the Milkweg, and, uh, you know, look, um, they were just having a great time over there, but you're absolutely right, you know, that that's the luck of the draw is to catch the dead, on an extended tour like that, where they're not surrounded by all the deadheads who will just get in their cars and drive a thousand miles to go see them. Um, you know, and so it, it, it really definitely cuts back on the numbers and you can see them in a place like that. And, you know, that has to be really, really special. I have some buddies, uh, in summer of, uh, 82, my buddies, Harold and Dan were, uh, in Europe touring all over the place. And they happened to go through West Germany when the Rolling Stones were playing there in the Olympic stadium. And it was kind of an overcast night. It was raining. And the story they tell is that, you know, the, the crowds were mostly staying back in the seats under the roof. Nobody was really down on the field. They just walked all the way up to the front. They got soaking wet. Uh, but they were up in front of the stage all night watching Mick and the boys do their thing. And, you know, uh, sometimes that's just the way to go. You got to find the right moment, slide in and, and catch, you know, really as, as a, as a real deadhead, you know, to ever be able to see any of them in a small venue is, is, uh, is amazing. Uh, we saw, uh, TC came here and played at the Cubby Bear in Chicago, uh, probably about that 10 years ago. And that was cool to see him, you know, even with not, you know, considering his relatively short reign on the dead. But, you know, just the fact that we were, you know, 100 feet away from the guy and he was up there playing, that's that's pretty special. For sure. Definitely. So uh, so I know you got some other pig tunes lined up for us and going back to kind of more traditional pig blues tunes. Yes, sir. Um, I think the next clip you have for us is, uh, is one that, you know, we've known pig to play since, you know, 68, 69. It was a staple for him in uh, in uh, Next Time You See Me, a.k.a. Lie Cheated. Yep. Uh, next Time You See Me. It's a great tune. It's a Junior Parker tune. Uh, from 1957, James Cotton uh, recorded a version of it in 1958, and now we're going to hear uh, Pigpen singing it uh, 50 years ago tomorrow. All the town did not go It's a true you say All the town did not go Oh, for so long You were 
you got to remember with Pig 2, versatile guy. He could play the piano, he could sing a tune, and he could blow that harmonica like nobody's business. I love that harp. I always forget about the harp with Pig. Yep. It just brings, you know, such a cool element to it, you know, which I guess Dylan was already doing it up there on stage, playing his guitar with his microphone in place and, you know, a few others at that time. But boy, Pig is just, he's the real deal, right? You know, you, a guy like him comes along once in a lifetime. And, you know, that, that's the reason why I'm not really sorry that I missed the opportunity to see him and just, uh, you know, what an amazing performer he was. But I love that tune and, and he really kills it. Yeah, like I said, whenever I think about like the staples of, of Pigpeds, um, sort of canon of songs, I always think of uh, Next to Me, See Me as being you know, sort of the top five of the ones that like just really uh, illustrate who he was as an artist. Yep, I think that's true. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a special time for them. Uh, Europe 72, they were clicking on all cylinders, pig in, in fine form. And then really, uh, by the end of the year, he was gone. And uh, was it the end of the year, the beginning of the next year, whenever it was, it happened very relatively quickly after that. And you know, uh, they're never the same. They're just different. And we've talked about this before. Different is good. Um, but you know, it was, uh, it was a big switch for a lot of people, I guess. And, uh, you know, all we can do is just go back and appreciate it. And, uh, you know, if anybody else, if you, if, if you download this show, any of the shows from Europe 72, because he's a, str- a strong presence on all of them. Uh, but the other album that they put out that I really, really like with a lot of pig pen on it is Bear's Choice. You know, and he does Katie May and a couple of other tunes on there. And that's great to listen to as well. So anytime you have a chance to to soak in some pig pen for a while, it's uh, it's highly recommended. And, and as it is, you know, to hear the full versions of all of these tunes we're playing, these are just, you know, one minute snippets out of there. And, you know, you get pig pen doing just so much stuff, talking and rapping and jamming and, uh, playing the harmonica and everything. And, um, I love it. What a great era for the Grateful Dead. So, Hey, before we wrap it up today, Larry, um, you know, we should probably ask, uh, Eric, if there's a way for people to reach him or find him if they're, uh, if they're looking for consulting advice on, uh, on greenhouses, Eric, what's the best way to get in touch with you? If, uh, if someone wants to reach out and bring you in to, to help them build a spot. Uh, yeah. I mean, people can just shoot me an email if they want. My email address is, uh, Eric, E-R-I-C, at greenhouseadvisorygroup.com. It's a long one, but Eric at greenhouseadvisorygroup.com. And, uh, yeah, just shoot me an email and, and uh, or find me at Shoreline. That's, uh, that's Eric with a C, not with a K, right? Yep, correct. Awesome. Well, anything else, uh, anything else you want to cover before we, uh, before we start wrapping this episode up and talk about what we're going to do for the next couple weeks of our shows? No, no, it's awesome listening to you guys, and thanks again for having me. No, man, thank you. This is, this is, uh, we really appreciate it. And when, uh, people take time out of their busy lives, uh, to come on and share some of their, their knowledge and experience with us and with our listeners. Um, you know, and it's like any community, whether it's the dead or the cannabis community or both of them, you know, that's the only way that the new people learn, right? Is when the old people are willing to come in and share the stories, not, not necessarily old, 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 but, you know, veteran been around for a while. And, uh, yeah, I think it's very important for everyone to always hear these stories and understand where this industry was and where it's gotten to. And, you know, just as importantly, Eric, you know, the role that guys like you have played, um, you know, in, in, in bringing the cultivation, uh, culture and technology so much forward now to, as to where it was originally when this all began. Yeah, it's hard to believe the things I do for a joint. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to believe it's been, you know, it sounds like you've been in this game as long as I have, which is now pushing, you know, 30 plus years. 
it's uh, amazing to think that you know our entire adult lives have been dedicated to a plant, or your entire life, depending on how you look at it, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but but thank you again, Eric. This is this is really great stuff, and uh, recommend to anyone out there who may want to get into the uh, cultivation of marijuana that uh, Eric would be a very very good person. Uh, to reach out to. So we appreciate that. Uh, just a couple of quick things before we go here. Uh, first of all, we haven't even touched on the fact over the last few weeks, Rob, that Dead and Company uh, not only are not breaking up, uh, but they, they've announced a summer tour. Uh, and so they're back on the road. Um, and, and maybe next week we'll spend a few minutes going over uh, some of the places they're going to be playing and, and, and focus on them for a few minutes and talk about what fans might expect over the summer. Uh, and uh, just as importantly, um, you know, what other, uh, Grateful Dead options there are, uh, whether it be JRAD or, uh, any of the other groups that are coming out there. But yes, for Deadheads, Dead and Co. is touring this summer. And, uh, if you want your tickets, now's the time to go get them. Um, the second thing is that I really want to, uh, mention the fact that, uh, our good friend of the show, Andy Greenberg from, uh, uh, San Francisco and Society Jane, uh, who's always kept me up to speed on everything Garcia related, was kind enough to send me out the latest, the uh, Garcia handpicked rolling papers. And these are good, man. You know, they've, they've got the little magnet built in. So when you close it, it has to do a magnet. They've got filters in there. They've got papers and, you know, this lovely uh, coloring on the front. So thank you to Andy for sharing and sending that over. And especially for folks living on the West Coast and in Massachusetts, look for those Garcia products. Uh, those are a lot of fun. And uh, just very finally and very quickly, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Pure Coast Cultivation up in the Kalamazoo area in Michigan. I just had an opportunity to be up that way the last couple of days. And uh, it's not going to be long, I don't think, before we're talking about central Michigan uh, you know, being a real uh, center of the uh, cannabis universe. Lots of stuff going on there. Lots of people with really good products. Uh, but these guys at Pure Coast are just getting started, and we're going to be looking for their products down the road. Jason and his wife, Bianca, their good friend, Don, who's the head of sales and the rest of the crew out there, they took us on a guided tour today, and it was uh, really, really uh, a fascinating thing to see. Eric, something I'm sure you probably know very much about, but for those of us that don't have an opportunity to get in greenhouses very often, uh, it, it was really, really very cool to see. So shout out to them, Pure Coast Cultivation. If you're in Michigan, look out for them. Uh, they're going to have good products soon. Anything else from you, Rob? Yeah, I mean, that's a great segue. I mean, a couple things. Um, one is, you know, our guest next week is uh, Stacy Smith, who was the um, has been the grower for Garcia's Handpicked in uh, Massachusetts, uh, who I also think will be, you know, very keen to talk about the Dead & Company shows coming up. So she'll be a great guest to, to cover that stuff with. And then the following week, we've got Dave Ellison from Scarlet Fire up in Canada, uh, the dispensary in, um, in Canada. And so um, got some great guests coming up. Um, and I'll have a great review next week of Hall of Flowers, where I'll be heading out to tomorrow. Uh, so that's happening right now. But Hall of Flowers is, you know, probably the most fun, you know, California-based uh, convention, where it's the only convention that really features every one of the brands, you know, a lot of the biggest brands in California and a lot of the biggest retailers as well. So it's, uh, it's always a fun event. But, um, but I'm pretty fired up going into uh, late spring, early summer and, you know, music heating up and the temperature heating up and everything else uh, being pretty fun. So, you know, in, until next week, uh, you know, I want to say thank you to Eric for joining us today. And as always, you know, Larry, thank you to you. And maybe give us a, a quick feature of what we're going to listen to on the, uh, on the exit here. And until then, I'll see you guys all next week. 
Very cool, Rob. Thank you so much. Yep, there is great music going on. Let's not forget uh, uh, Big Jazz Fest going on. Uh, if you're listening to this on Monday, then it just happened. It just concluded. I got a lot of friends down there. That would have been a fun to get to this year, but there's just too much good live music, and uh, we can't get to it all. We're gonna we're gonna end our show today with one final pig pen tune um, from this amazing Rotterdam show 50 years ago tomorrow, uh, May 11th, 1972, and. Um, it comes from uh, a tune, uh, Caution, which was a, uh, a very strong musical instrumental jam that the uh, the dead traditionally played at that time. And Pigpen would show up somewhere in the middle of it and start uh, belting away with his, his blues uh, vocals and, and performance. Um, one part about this Caution that we're not going to cover today just because it came a little too late in the song and it doesn't give us enough of everything else. But they had just played with Bo Diddley. Uh, very recently before this show and they were very steeped at that point in the Bo Diddley beat and at the very end of the caution all of a sudden you have Pigpen doing the Who Do You Love Bo Diddley riff with the band in the background kind of picking it up for a minute and uh, then they just kind of peter out from there and that's the end of the tune Uh, but if you're going to listen to this uh, I really recommend listening to this caution just because it's a great one and making sure you listen all the way to the end to catch that that Bo Diddley beat but uh, on the way out now we're going to ask Dan to spin a little caution for us everybody enjoy thank you again to Eric Branstad thanks to Rob thanks to Dan Humiston for his wonderful producing and we will see you all next week be safe be good and enjoy your cannabis responsibly I went down to see a gypsy woman one day. Yeah. Yes, I did. Trying to find out what's wrong with my baby. Beckerman, and I'd like to invite you to join me with my hemp industry leading guests on Hemp Baron. During my over a quarter century at the forefront of the hemp movement and emerging hemp economy, I've had the privilege of working with many of the world's most dynamic, innovative, trailblazing hemp pioneers. And now, every week, I have the honor of speaking with them and sharing their stories with you on Hemp Baron. You can download the latest episode every Wednesday at mjbulls.com or from wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon And I'm Saba. And we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout Podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down. down.